Imagine if each morning when you wake up, you're smiling and looking forward to your day, knowing you are happy even while you're dealing with grief and loss. The Grief and Happiness Podcasts inspires, comforts, and supports you with each new episode. I'm Emily Zerothret, welcoming you to explore with me your life of endless possibilities. Aloha. I am so happy to have today as my special guest, Christina Mandlakani. Is that close? Almost, but it sounds a little Hawaiian now. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that kind of (laughs) happens. The Hawaiian seems in there. And she's coming to us from Estonia, which is, I haven't done a podcast with anybody in Estonia before, so that's pretty exciting. And I'm talking to her today because her new book is coming out, and she's all about happiness. And since this podcast is all about grief and happiness, I thought she'd be the perfect person to talk to. So welcome, Christina. Thank you, Emily, for having me. It's a pleasure. Oh, I'm I'm very happy to have you here. Could you tell us a little bit about you? I am, uh, yes, uh, in very short version, I'm um, a co-founder of Mindvalley, so entrepreneur in personal growth and transformation industry. I'm also um, an artist, a mother, a philanthropist, a hobby farmer, a lot of things, and an author of a book now, as of just recently. Oh, that's wonderful. That's so exciting. You're kind of a person after my own heart. <laughs> I like to do all those things too. And you mentioned Mind Valley. I've I've got to tell you, I'm I'm a member. I love it. I listen to something on Mind Valley every day, and there's so much good there that I I'm sure I'll never run out of things to listen to because there's so much good there. Thank you so much. Yes, because we are a platform and uh, we work with the authors like the best authors, obviously, but with a lot of authors in our industry, then uh, there will be always something to share, I'm sure. Yes. Oh, well, maybe someday you'll have grief and happiness author for that. <laughs> of uh, yes, that sounds good to me. I, I did mention that, that you kind of focus on happiness. Can you tell us about, actually, why happiness? What uh, What got you excited about writing about happiness? So I'll take one more step back and explain that uh, I am in the industry by accident in a way and a little reluctantly. And I even ended up becoming an author also a little bit. Well, I wouldn't call it by accident, but it wasn't a planned step or it wasn't something that I was dreaming about or planning my career this way. I was an entrepreneur for many years, for 15 years by then, about uh, about that time. And I was very comfortable in that position. But it just happened so that I was uh, speaking on stage and I was sharing uh, my ideas about happiness, which were result of me being in the industry for a long time. So I just regurgitated it in my own way, added my own little twist uh, to it. And it started spreading. And I ended up becoming an author because this topic just kind of stuck to me and people kept asking me to talk about it. But to be fair, I actually have uh, moved uh, a little bit uh, deeper into one aspect of happiness, into a relationship with yourself, because uh, I truly believe that one of the very crucial elements of learning to be happy is learning to be at peace with yourself, uh, to love and accept yourself the way you are. So that has become uh, my true passion and, uh, and my deepest work is in that sphere. But it all started with happiness. Oh, that's so wonderful. And I've, I've discovered with when I started adding happiness into what, whatever I did, like my podcast is Grief and Happiness podcast, and I facilitate a 
a peer support group called the Grief and Happiness Alliance. And whenever happiness seems to involve be involved, people are drawn to it. I think we're, we're all searching for more happiness in our lives today. And I love how you're saying uh, uh, taking care of yourself for your own happiness mm. is so important. You know, I, I still like to talk about happiness also as a separate topic, although I think it's much wider than just love for yourself. There's a lot of other, there are a lot of other elements, but uh, I would say that, yes, people are drawn to happiness, but it is a, um, you know, I do not know, like reluctant curiosity in some way, like a little bit, I don't know, shy curiosity. Somewhere deep inside, we know that we want to be happy. Well, in essence, everything you do is because you want to feel good or you want to, to, to be happy. But the society actually doesn't accept happiness uh, as a serious enough goal, I think. And which is why we uh, see a lot of interesting phenomena for like one of them would be, I'm in personal growth for 20 years. And one rule in personal growth in nearly every area is if you want something to, if you want to succeed in any area, you have to put effort into it. You have to put time, effort, you have to work on it. Uh, take relationships. You have to work on relationships. Take parenting. You have to work on yourself to be a good parent. Health and fitness, obviously, you have to work on yourself. Yet somehow when it comes to happiness, then the public discourse says, don't pursue happiness because um, you're not going to get it then. Or happiness is unimportant. Uh, meaning is more important. Uh, altruism is more important. This and that. And in a way, we have this very strange phenomenon where everything in this life needs to be achieved and worked on except happiness somehow. Happiness is somehow going to happen. Another strange phenomenon, I think, is our fear of admitting that happiness is important to the, to the point that we never set it as a goal. And I've asked around for several years now, people don't normally have happiness on their uh, goal lists for a year. On the other side, and I think this is uh, another symptom of the same weird phenomenon, is that we actually can't define success properly. When we talk about success, and I've, I've been asked about success on so many podcasts and interviews, uh, people are always curious, so define success for you. And for me, success is very straightforward. I like to call the names in their proper, I mean, I like to call things by their proper names. Success, the way the society understands it, is usually about profession, finance. And this whole idea that, no, but it's not real success if you're not happy. That's actually a symptom of the disease that we have, that we cannot prioritize happiness enough. It's kind of scary to set it as a goal, like how am I going to admit to the world that happiness, my happiness is important, I'm going to work for it. No, I'm like everybody else in this society, I'm working to be successful, but I won't consider myself successful if I'm not happy. And I kind of get the logic of that, but I think it's a slippery slope because once we start stretching, stretching the meanings of words until they're super thin, they will stop serving us. They will stop being meaningful. So, which is why I'm a huge advocate of actually prioritizing happiness and, and not being so scared, shy, ashamed of the idea that happiness is important. Oh, I just, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I, I really, I find people are kind of shy, as, as you said, that they, or they're kind of embarrassed or they think they, they're not supposed to be happy, you know, like, yeah. uh, for instance, my husband died. How could I be smiling? You know, well, yeah, you can. It's two different things. 
And when we lump things together, happiness just gets sifted out. And as far as talking about it or and even experiencing it, but happiness is so vital. Mm. I, you know, you just touched upon a, one very interesting aspect of our misunderstanding of happiness. You just said, "My husband died. How can I be? Uh, how can I smile?" Uh, and that's another interesting thing that is happening to our society. I think because we are so uncomfortable with pain, we cannot really understand happiness. And whether we like it or not, but there are two sides of a one, one important whole, uh, which is our emotional life. And yes, if we if we try to close our eyes uh, on pain and talk about happiness without that aspect, then it is going to be very one-sided and unhealthy. But that's another interesting result. Happiness is suffering because we humans are uncomfortable with pain. No, yeah. There you go. Yeah, I see that. That's really good. I know I uh, have often said and have been uh, kind of questioned for that I'm happier now than I ever have been. And I I believe that I'm happy for me because that's what I focus on. I think what you get is what you focus on. And, and it's okay to uh, be dealing with any kind of loss and still find things to be happy about. You can still look up and see a rainbow and be happy. That doesn't mean that you're experiencing your loss any less. Mm. When I talked about happiness, <laughs> well, I still talk about happiness. When I talk about happiness, I usually uh, want to encourage people to define happiness. And uh, I've... Uh, I've been so curious about this topic and so many people have opinions and happiness is this one word, which is, I call it a buzzword. It's very loaded and it has a huge baggage and we think, we assume that we all understand it the same way. So we talk about happiness, we can talk to five, 10 people uh, and we might be talking about five or 10 different things without realizing that because we're using the same word happiness. And as I said, this tendency to stretch the words until they're so thin that they stop serving us uh, is not helping. So in my teaching, I try to approach happiness as a state rather than emotion. And emotions, of course, are uh, part of the teachings. But if you take happiness more as a state rather than as an emotion, then it is it becomes a little more tangible because emotions are fluid by nature. They change. They change as you express them, as you feel them, as you process them, they change. States are not like that. And here I noticed another interesting thing. You know, we have, uh, we consider depression an emotion. <laughs> Oh, not emotion, sorry, as a state. We don't mm-hmm. say, oh, you're just, you're just being emotional. We, we, we understand that depression is a state. Yet there is almost no opposite of that. The opposite of depression is being okay. So it's, it's interesting that we don't have a definition of a, a productive, uh, content state when you're at peace, when you're engaged, when you're enjoying your life. And it doesn't mean that you're always euphoric or laughing or smiling, but you can still consider yourself happy because you wouldn't be any other place. And that is the discussion we are not having as a society. We, One reason why we write off happiness is because we think it's an emotion. And in that case, yes, of course, I wouldn't be advocating just, just pleasure or, or euphoria or even just joy. Well, joy, joy is also in a way uh, a little bit more complex than an emotion. But I mean, 
we can't focus on emotions if we want a lasting change. We have to focus on a state, on a more, on a bigger picture. That makes so such perfect sense. I, I just think it would be wonderful to have more conversations about this in our society because it, it's it's silly for us to dodge happiness. You know, <laughs> I I just am not sure I will ever understand why there's so much guilt around it because that's just why you know it's it's good to be happy. But isn't it a little bit uh, of our the, the narrative that our society has had for? For centuries, in essence, we if you if you take literature, that's pretty much the stories that we 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 know from the past is they're coming through literature mostly. If you take literature, we usually have this idea that somebody has to suffer or to sacrifice something for the bigger good. So we have this fascination with martyrdom as uh, the highest state of being. And I'm not saying there's no place for that. Of course, there is, but it's usually not in everyday life. Uh, for most of us, unless you work in uh, rescue services or you're, let's say, in the military, where it's it's different, different world. But uh, the end of the 20th century, uh, our current century, Western societies have seen uh, relative peace and safety, and this uh, predominant idea that unless you sacrifice yourself for a greater good, you're no, you're not a good human being. It is also in the way of us understanding that happiness is important. There is this feeling of guilt that if I want to pursue my own happiness, that makes me selfish, that makes me uh, less than a good human being. Um, uh, Yes, I think that's exactly what's going on. So, but we can change that. We can, we'll just, the two of us (laughs) will work on that and, (laughs) and make a big difference in the world. It's not just two of us. I, uh, we have one very good alley. <laughs> uh, he's, uh, he's a famous guy, and I'll share the story. <laughs> it was about 10, maybe 15 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, a while ago. And uh, Vishen, my former husband and a founder of Mind Valley, uh, he was speaking on a big stage in Canada and sharing the stage with Dalai Lama. At that time, as we were building Mind Valley, which is a company which is attempting to help people, humanity, to live uh, more um, extraordinary, happy, fulfilled, meaningful lives. But on the other hand, I was still doing something which I used to do uh, before Mind Valley. I was working for uh, with refugees. Uh, so I was doing some charity work and some social work. So I was working with refugees in Asia, and I saw a lot of misery. Uh, people who are refugees in Asia, they lose everything. Uh, and they, well, not just everything, but they lose their home and, and any sense of belonging or security anywhere. So I had a very strong cognitive dissonance on a daily basis, because on one side, I was building a company to help people, uh, well, simplifying, I'm simplifying it, but to help people to be happy. And on the other hand, I saw very unhappy people on a daily basis. So when Vishen was talking at that event, we had an audience with Dalai Lama, and I asked him, uh, how can I reconcile these two worlds in my own being, in my reality, uh, to which his answer was very simple. He said, Christina, you cannot help anyone if you're not happy. Mm. So uh, I believe that, uh, you know, we are not alone in that fight. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you're not, and, and there's a lot of research that shows that you are much more productive and you have better chances at success if you're doing whatever you're doing in a good, content state of happiness, in essence, I, I love that. I'm, of course, I'm I'm 
love the Dalai Lama. I just was looking at one of his books right here, right here in front of me on my desk. And he, he is an, a major happiness ad- advocate. His words are profound and gentle and non-judgmental. And they just... And funny. They, yeah, they're funny. He, he does have a sense of humor. I, I can imagine when um, he was writing with Desmond Tutu, the, the books that they wrote together, that I could just see them giggling. <laughs> it just seemed like that, that would be going on while they were doing that process. Well, tell us about your new book. So my new book is called Becoming Flossom, and it is, um, yes, it it is a continuation of the happiness topic. I did talk about happiness there a little bit because you can't you can't talk about one without the other but in essence the book is about finding your way back to you and uh, that's a very simplified way to say that of course but it is a book about uh, about learning to understand and see yourself clearly to get to know yourself properly um, to actually recognize and um accept uh, not just uh, the things that we like to show about ourselves, but also to recognize that all of us have uh, our little dragons in the basement, <laughs> our flaws, our scratches and dents, which we uh, accumulate throughout life. So the book is about actually looking those dragons in the eye and accepting them, acknowledging that they are there, but going beyond that and uh, learning not to love, uh, n- learning to love yourself, not despite the dragons, but recognizing that you are what you are because of that experience, because of those scratches and dents, because of your dragons, and maybe even finding strength in the things which uh, initially maybe made you shrink and feel shy and feel uh, even ashamed and guilty. So yeah, it's a, it's a journey back to uh, to you, and I hope as many books as get sold, this many journeys are going to be taken. Oh, what a gift to the world. It's certainly much needed at this Thank point, you. especially in our society. You, The title of the book, did you say flaw? flaw I don't, did you say flossom? Becoming flawsome, yes. Well, can you explain that word to us? <laughs> it's it's such a funny thing. You know, I realized that I don't explain it uh, enough. I actually don't explain it very often. Uh, and there is a reason for that. Of course, you will probably find the definition on Urban Dictionary somewhere. Uh, and, and it is combined of two very recognizable words, flaws and awesome. So it is about becoming um, a better version of you with your flaws, uh, not despite them or not trying to eradicate them or not trying to uh, become something different than what you actually are, but with your flaws and you know, f- accepting yourself fully. Um, but I, the reason why I don't define the f- word flawsome very often is because I, I think that in our society, we're a little bit, um, we're becoming a little bit dogmatic uh, in uh, a lot of areas, and especially in personal growth and transformation. We tell people how they are to be happy, how they are to be uh, successful, how they are to be healthy and whatnot. We, we tell all those things how you are supposed to be. But when it comes to being yourself, being authentic or being flawsome, I'm not the judge of what it means to be flawsome for you or for any of the listeners, because it's a personal journey and the destination is very unique to each person who takes that journey. And uh, you're the only person who can define what it really means to be flawsome for you, because uh, what is the flaw for you might be not a big deal for me. And what is my flaw might be uh, a deal breaker for you, you know, something something to actually really eradicate. So it's... um, 
it's a journey and it's a decision of every single human being. And I also believe that we have so many answers inside of us, which we sometimes don't dare to hear, to listen, to acknowledge, to go for. And we keep looking for someone to give us the permission to, to show us the way, to give us the right answers. But it's all inside if you just dare. Yeah, you got gotta pay attention and, and see it. Um, well, you mentioned two words and now I'm trying to remember what they were. I should have written them down as you were going along. Uh, I think you mentioned fear. Did you yeah. say fear? I think in general that there's so much fear in the world about stuff that doesn't doesn't need to be fear. And fear is, gets in the way of happiness if, if we allow it to. So I, You know, I don't talk about fear per se. I talk about courage in my book because mm-hmm. to uh, find your way back to you, you need three, I would call them qualities. So the three qualities are kindness, courage, and honesty. Well, honesty is the first one that I talk about. Uh, So honesty, kindness, courage. Uh, So I don't talk about fear directly. I talk about courage. And I think courage is an important ingredient for any journey, for any transformation. You can't, uh, well, you can't change without having a little bit of courage. Uh, So uh, usually if you don't have courage, you'll end up stagnating at some point. Only only kids uh, grow and change and learn. fearlessly <laughs> but yeah. we learn to be afraid of things and and fear in a way yes it may it may get in your way it may but it's also it is also a natural emotion and it is also something that biology gave us for a reason it, it's one of those emotions which preserves our life which uh, keeps us protected of course it is very often misplaced in the contemporary world and Especially that in contemporary uh, Western world, we are so safe that we are not even uh, comfortable with fear because we don't experience very often. And we can, when we grow up, we can actually eliminate this emotion completely out of our life. So avoid hard conversations, not challenge yourself, uh, not uh, commit to relationships, not fall in love. That's, That's the way we eliminate fear out of our lives. And... The problem, maybe maybe by making fear a taboo in a way, we're doing a disservice to ourselves. Fear is a natural part of our biology. What is not natural is to let it dominate your choices and let it dominate your, you know, your living experience and, and stop you from experiencing life. So that's why I focus more on courage than fear per se. Yeah, I think that's absolutely perfect because I I believe it's a lot easier to be happy if you're focusing on the positive and when when you let the negative dominate. And and a lot of times it's not true. If we can just look at things and see what's true. I was uh, I had terrible vision as a as a child and as such had a hard time in school because I wasn't seeing what everybody else was seeing. I couldn't figure out what they were talking about. And as an adult, I, you know, I I compensated. I made it through. I did very well in, in, in college and university. But I, I still had that. And so I chose to get LASIK surgery done on my eyes. And it was immediately effective. I mean, they, you lie down on a table for them to do it. They do it. It takes a few minutes. And then you sit up and walk away. When I stood up, I, it dawned on me that I had been terrified of heights my whole life. 
<laughs> but when I had the LASIK surgery, the floor was where it was supposed to be. And it never had been for me before. Oh, wow. And it, it was such a life changer for me. But and, and later on, I had to have cataract surgery and that undid the LASIK surgery. So I'm back in glasses. But the fear has gone. I'm not afraid of heights anymore. And mm. the lesson for me was that the fear wasn't real. I, I was mm. fearing something that didn't exist. And that wasted a lot of my life. So when we can identify the things that uh, we don't need to worry about and focus on what's good, what's beautiful, what's lovely, the love that, that you can share with everyone, all that sort of thing, that yeah. that can really make a difference in your life. You know, if you if you don't mind, I would I, I would like to give it my take on that. I think maybe the fear was real because you felt it, but the threat, very often the threat isn't real. And that's a huge difference. Um, yeah. Because I'm a, a very uh, big advocate of uh, taking emotions the way they are for what they are and not judging them as good or bad, uh, right or wrong. Uh, it's it's actually not my my theory. I learned it from a wonderful teacher and a writer and an author of a book as well, um, Susan David. She's Dr. Susan David. Uh, so she's the one who gives really good good understanding of how to process your emotions, both pleasant and unpleasant. And she's the one who says, uh, why don't you classify emotions as the kind that I would like to have more and the kind that I wouldn't, I would like to have less. So uh, if we, if we stay uh, with the idea of fear, um, I don't enjoy fear. It's unpleasant, but there are situations where I welcome it. As I said, it's it's just uh, it's just emotion which I feel uh, is threat real or not. It's uh, well, it's up to you to decide. A lot of people have fear of public speaking. I still feel uh, nervous when I go on stage, and I've spoken on stage a lot. So, of course, there's no real threat when you go on stage. <laughs> you might say so, right? Because your life is not in danger. But if you look at it from the anthropological point of view, our biggest need is to be liked. Because uh, biologically, it was very unsafe to be disliked. Because if you were disliked, you were ostracized and then you would end up being killed. So uh, as as one of, uh, one of our teachers said, uh, it is... The, the fear of rejection or, or the need to be liked and accepted is actually the question of life and death. So in that aspect, that threat is real. Well, anthropologically speaking, for my body, for my for my human <laughs> for my human shape. So in my case, I only ask myself, do I welcome this fear or not? Or if I feel it, does do I let it stop me? Usually, I, my fear is never a reason for me to not do something, uh, because that's that's what courage is about. Courage is not absence of fear. Courage is uh, is ability to act uh, with fear, through fear, despite fear. However, you take it. So when I go on stage, I actually welcome uh, nervousness and fear because this is biologic. This is how my body uh, prepares me to be in good shape. Again, if we look about, if we look at it anthropologically, when we were uh, in ancient tribes, like you know, primitive human beings, fear kicked in so that you could run away from a predator or, mm -hmm. in some other way, uh, save your life. And your body needed to be in top shape because you needed to run fast, your blood needed to pump fast, you needed to breathe fast. So it was the biologist's way to prepare you for the challenge ahead. 
So I still take fear from the same point of view when I go on stage. If I feel nervous, I know I will perform better. Hmm. I have and I have performed I have been on stage so many times. The few times that I've gone on stage relaxed, I actually was never in my peak shape peak shape. So in that aspect, I welcome fear. But when I go to a dentist, I don't like uh, being afraid of a dentist. No. <laughs> That's not helpful. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Wow. So much to think about. Um, it's just fascinating talking to you. I'm really looking forward to reading your book. I know. Thank you. <laughs> that's that's going to be quite wonderful. Um, what else would you like to tell us? I would say, you know, I will just uh, repeat what Dalai Lama said. You can't help anyone if you're not happy. So it is that. a very responsible goal to have. I actually wrote that down. I, I hadn't heard that quote before, and I really liked that a, a lot. I don't think it's on quote wiki or whatever it's called, yeah. wiki quote, because he said it to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's a good way to hear it firsthand. So, you know, he, he really did say it. That's, that's so cool. Well, I appreciate you being here so much today. I'm sure that uh, after listening to you that people are going to just really want to read your book. I know I, I am because I I do focus on happiness. And the more, the more you immerse yourself with something, the easier it is for you to practice whatever it is. So I, I say read good books that, that are happy books. And when you, uh, I know when, when, uh, my husband Jacques was got to the point. It was back when we didn't have all the Netflix and that sort of thing, and he he couldn't do much, and he was frustrated, and so he would watch TV, and he'd never been a TV watcher. But we started. We decided we would only watch things that were uplifting, that would be happy or make us smile or make us feel good. And it wasn't easy to find that sort of thing on TV at that time. Now it's a little easier to search. But I I know it made a difference because if if you you're watching things that are negative and sad and violent and you can't be happy, so it's uh, immersing yourself in what's good and immersing yourself in a book like yours where you can actually think about what's important in life is is taking care of you and making you be able to have the very best life that you can have, and that comes along with happiness. You know, I would say that uh, loving yourself is absolutely necessary if you want to be happy. You cannot mm -hmm. be happy if you don't love yourself and accept yourself and at peace with yourself because it is absolutely impossible. But if you love yourself, there's no guarantee you will be happy. But at least, yes. at least you will be at peace with yourself. So it is a, uh, this causality goes one way. But if you talk about happiness, self-love is definitely an important ingredient. Oh, yeah, it sure is. Well, I will have uh, for our listeners the links to everything to do with Christina, and it will be um, a, a pleasure to see lots of people get so much from your book. It, it just feels so good that that you can make the difference in a world like doing by doing a book and knowing that when people read it, they're they're gonna be able to easily or more easily change in a way that's going to support them and make their life that much better. I do hope so. I'm, I've am i written the book because it's um, 
my mission to spread my message. I believe in my message. I believe in my book. And um, I, yeah, I want to share uh, what I have with the world. Are people going to, to take this journey or not? That's up to people, of course, up to every reader. So um, I cannot take people's journeys for them, but I can be there with them as they as they go and find themselves. Yeah, and, and sometimes it just takes a little inspiration for those people who would like to find themselves. And when they, they say, oh, wow, it is possible. I can feel better. I can do better. And that that's the kind of help that you're uh, giving to the world. So that's wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. And uh, to my listeners, I'll look forward to seeing you again next week. And I'm so grateful to Christina for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Emily, for having me. Aloha. Do you want more comfort, support, and happiness? Join the Grief and Happiness Alliance. Visit my website at lovingandlivingyourwaythroughgrief.com and read my book, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, rate it, review it, and binge on all our episodes on grief and happiness. I can't wait to welcome you back to another episode.